This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Forever. Dog. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kevin McDonald's Kevin McDonald Show with Kevin McDonald. But first, give a big hand for your announcer. Hi. I'm your announcer for the Kevin McDonald Show. I'm also Kevin McDonald. We're having a hard time getting announcers. Um, uh, so I'm your announcer tonight. Woo! <laughs> the trouble is, more and more of our prospective announcers are, are listening to the show first uh, before they say yes. Uh, we really should just uh, gang up on them, tie them up, put them in a trunk of a car, dump them in a dark, secluded warehouse, and ask them quickly before they get a chance to listen to my podcast <laughs> or see my work, any of my work. Uh, the, I think starving them would help too, I think. Uh, now, your typical podcast hosted by a celebrity... Minor as I am, um, averages about 15,000 listeners. Uh, my podcast averages is uh, 12. 12 listeners. Just, just 12 people. Uh, so if many of you in the audience um, uh, tonight are one of my 12 regular uh, listeners, I know you're disappointed. I know. Uh, I get it. The most popular part of the podcast for the 12 of you who listen to it um, is the interplay between the announcer and myself. Well, don't worry. Uh, we're still going to have plenty of that. And so, without further ado, if you guys are ready for the show to begin, uh, I think it's time to bring your host out. Yeah, you know him as the weakest member of the kids in the hall. And the guy you're here to see, well, 12 or less of you, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Kevin McDonald. Hello. Hello, and thank you. Thank you, everyone. Wow, what a crowd. Uh, good to be here. Good to be here. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I'd also like to thank my announcer for doing the show tonight. No, no, Kevin, thank you. I was so thrilled when you asked me to do it. Well, we're thrilled to have you. Not as thrilled as me. Let's just say we're both thrilled. <laughs> Funny, funny. See, we still have the interplay. Uh, but now it's time to start the show. Uh, though I'm not exactly sure how we're going to do it with an announcer who's another person, um, but we'll, we will muddle through it somehow. Kevin, good news. We have an announcer. An announcer? A real person? Someone volunteered to be my announcer? Really? Yeah, volunteered. Sure. Bring him out! This is exciting! I said it might be Tom Papas. That's not a lie. The, ca the caterer might be Tom Papas. Fuck you. Uh, Tom Papas is great, but, but I guess you must be a fan of mine, too. Is that why you volunteered to be my announcer? Uh, Say it. 
Say it just like we rehearsed. I can't. I can't. If you want that wife of yours to also be let out of the trunk, then say it now. I volunteered to be your announcer because of all the kids in the hall. Yes, go on. You're my... Uh, uh-huh. You're, you're my... Yeah? I can't do it. I can't do it. Trunk of the car. All right. Of all the kids in the hall, you're my third favorite. Okay, are you happy? Third favorite? Really? No one's ever ranked me that high before. I, uh, let's see. Scott must be fifth. That's obvious. Um, I wonder who's fourth. Really? Third? Me? Sure. Uh, I'll say whatever you want to hear, okay? <laughs> Just don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. And, and let my wife out of the trunk? Why did you take my wife? I have, I have three kids. Why didn't you take the middle one? Take the middle one. Take Jonah. Okay, great. I think we're ready to start the show then. Announcer? Hey, Kevin, is it time for you to do your song? Hey, I guess it is announcer. Thanks. Now, I've been in love many times in my life, ladies and gentlemen. Stop weeping. <laughs> but most of those loves have been, um, what's the word? Oh, yeah, unrequited. They've been unrequited. Good word. Good word. So I wrote a song about it, which I'm about to sing. Sorry. Um, my, my first unrequited crush was in grade one uh, with a girl named Susan Green. My nickname for her was Greenie. And her nickname for me was nothing. She had no nickname. She didn't talk to me. So why would she have a nickname? In, in high school, my major crush was on Beth Kenny. Beth Kenny. Uh, my crush on her actually began in grade five. I had an unrequited crush on her for eight years. True story. And she was nice enough to talk to me about all the boyfriends she was seeing. Um, I somehow got on the football team, and um, the football team somehow made it to the championship game, um, which was going to be playing in our CFL. It's like your NFL, only the C stands for Canada. Um, Our CFL team, uh, the Toronto Argos, because I grew up in Toronto, and uh, we were going to play where they played, and we were going to get the Toronto Argo announcer. He was actually going to announce the game. Did he think he was announcing a Tom Papa's game? No! Uh, Beth says she was coming to the game, so I swear to my friends that the announcer would announce my name during the game so Beth would hear it. And he did. He did. Kevin McDonald is the injured player. <laughs> Kevin McDonald is the injured player. A uh, true story. I got hurt in the huddle. <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> you know, when you break the huddle and you go, break! I, uh, broken ribs. <laughs> true story. Um, uh, as Beth Kenny uh, was, uh, I got broken ribs when Beth Kenny was making out with Philip Fouché, my badminton partner. Another sad true story. <laughs> oh, in grade 12, I also had a crush on um, uh, Beth's best friend, Sherry Elias, uh, which I guess is unrequited cheating. I'm not sure. <laughs> Sherry Elias had hairy arms. The hair on her arms were dark, thick, and sexy. I dreamt of her sexy, hairy arms. I dreamt of them a lot. Then I went to college for acting, very briefly, and um, got a crush uh, on a, a young woman named Sharon Hilt. Uh, she was very nice, but had no romantic interest in me, until one night, when a bunch of our friends uh, were hanging out uh, at an apartment, and um, I was on the floor. That was my status in college. Um, she was sitting on a chair. Sharon was chair popular. Um, and then she started playing with my hair. My hair! For 10 minutes! It drove me crazy. Good crazy. 
uh, on Monday at school, she came up to apologize to me for playing with my hair. And I said, oh, no, 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 I liked it. And she said, yeah, I don't know. I just have this thing for touching fucked up stuff. <laughs> you know, especially fucked up greasy stuff. It's like I'm compelled towards the horrific. Um, so anyway, sorry. And it didn't end there. Um, I kept getting unrequited crushes over and over. Oh, sorry. 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 Uh, yeah. So I remember my high school. I remember it very well. So this first verse is dedicated to... Unrequited crush number one, Beth Kenny. You were popular in school and considered quite pretty. And I was fat, my marks were bad, pimpled and shy. In math I cried. And yet I thought I had a chance with you. Unrequited crush number one, Beth Kenny. What was I thinking? Was I thinking? Then I went to college to study acting and unrequited crushes, as it turned out. And so the second verse is dedicated to Unrequited crush Number two Sharon Held She had long Dark black hair Always spoke What she felt But I was fat And tongue-tied Failing in college And I still cried but I dreamed of a romance with you. Unrequited crush number two, Sharon Held. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? I guess that's kind of sad for a comedy song. And then I started my adult life, but the unrequited crushes weren't done. And so this last verse is dedicated to unrequited crush. Number three, Karen Depawa. You were an accountant and interested in financial law. I was still fat and a louse. I tried to look down the top of your blouse. At the altar, I thought I'd stand with you. Unrequited crush number three, Karen de What was I thinking? 
What was I thinking? What was I thinking? What was I thinking? My problem is that I don't think at a party I should only drink or else I'll fall in love again with someone who won't care and make fun of my fuzzy hair. I'm not blaming them, I'm the freak. I'm not blaming them, I'm the freak. Always in love, always in love, never in love, never in love, always in love, always in love, love, always, never, always, never, never. Never. Benji Hughes! Thank you. You'll be back. Thank you. The song is over. Thank God Almighty. The overly self-indulgent song is over. We now take you. We now take you to Kevin McDonald's latest comedy sketch. It opens in a wow. An office. Wow, I've never seen a comedy sketch that takes place in an office before. Wild! <laughs> Almost uh, surreal, next level. What's next? Uh, a sketch that takes place in like a restaurant with a couple on a first date? Let's just do the sketch, you sarcastic prick. <laughs> of course. We now take you to an office. Where do you get your ideas, man? Just tripping on acid? Fuck off, prick. <laughs> the boss, Mr. Fotis, played by the wildly imaginative Kevin McDonald, is at his desk in an office. <laughs> and the scene begins! Mr. Fotis presses the intercom. If they still have intercoms in offices, Kevin hasn't written a sketch in a long time. <laughs> Uh, Mrs. Thomerson, could you send Mr. Bozigan, please? Mrs. Thomerson? Hmm. Ms. Christfield? Is uh, Mrs. Thomerson there? Ms. Christfield, could you send Mr. Bozigan, please? Ms. Christfield? Mrs. Thomerson? Hmm. Oh, yes, I fired everybody yesterday. Right, right, I'll do it. <laughs> Mr. Fotis walks to the door and opens it to the waiting room where we see writer Joe Bozick, who is sitting. Joe, hi, please, come on in. Oh, good, I was feeling alone and scared. There's no one here, anywhere. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, yes, everyone in the office has um, disappeared. Yes, yes, came back from lunch yesterday, and um, everyone had... Vanished. Yes. Vanished. Odd. Yes. Odd. Yes. Well, come into my I'm lying. I fired everybody. I mean office. Come into my office. Thank you. They walk into the office and both sit down. 
So, how are things? Great, thanks. I'm very excited about the book and... Uh, good, good. Not listening, not listening. Good, good. How's your wife Hercules doing? It's Chloris, and um, she's doing wonderful. She's going back to university to... Uh, good, good. Not listening, not listening. The kids are in college now, right? One is, but... Um, don't care, don't care. Not listening, not listening. So, I read the book... Oh, good. And once again, thank you very much for hiring me. Writing an English translation of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment has always been a dream of mine. Did you like it? Oh, yes, very much. Very, very much. Well, did you think it was a good translation? Oh, yes, yes. I don't know. I never read the original. But my version, it, it seemed like a good translation. Oh, yes, yes. Well, there are a few things. A few, a few things. things. A few things. Yes few things that don't seem to be exactly from the original novel, uh, not that I've ever read it. What do you mean? Well, for example, starting on page 112, right after he commits the dark and violent murder of an old innocent woman, the lead character Raskolnikov, instead of running away in the shadows plagued by guilt, he puts on his, and I'm quoting from your book now, his favorite jammies, the ones with the piggies on them, <laughs> and decides to give himself a perm. Yes, curly hair is very calming. Hmm, curly hair, calming, hmm. And when his perm is set, um, even though the police are hunting him, Raskolnikov decides to go to a tattoo parlor and get a tattoo of a creature that is half horse and half Patrick Swayze. That's in the original. Really? <laughs> really? I didn't know that perms and Patrick Swayze were popular in 1866 Russia. Very. Good, good. And then there's... Kevin opens the book. Um, this part, and on page 276, he goes to the dog pound to get a puppy. Uh, and I just don't think in the 19th century that a Russian killer would call a dog Mr. Snappy Paws. That's a direct translation from the book, and it was a very popular name at the time. Is it? Was it? Well, you didn't have any complaints with my translation of Les Miserables? Yes, yes. Well, the problem there was... I never read your translation of Les Miserables. I was too busy planning on how to fire people. Oh. Uh, until two days ago, when I finished your translation of Crime and Punishment, and then I thought, hey, hey, I better read his translation of Les Miserables. And what did you think? A lot of things. I thought a lot of things. In fact, I think that you seem to be writing a little more about yourself than the actual classic novel from France. In what way? Well, let me read a passage from your version of the classic French novel, Les Miserables. Mr. Fotis starts reading from Joe's translation of Les Mis. Valjean felt the entirety of the government was against him, even the entirety of the country. I understand that myself. Sometimes I feel that my wife Cloris is against me, <laughs> almost wanting me to fail. For example, she knows that I have to write this English translation of Les Miserables, but she's always at me, did you do the weeding? Did you notice the car had to be washed? Someone has to wash it. Oh, I guess you'd rather sit on your ass all day and rewrite famous French books written by real writers. Well, I finally told her to fuck off yesterday. I did. I said, Cloris, fuck off, you aging hag. You know, sometimes I dream that you'll cheat on me. Please cheat on me with a rich, handsome guy so you can leave me in peace, you aging hag. I hate you. I hate you. Then Valjean decided to leave Paris and try his fortune in the southern of France. Mr. Fotis stops reading and closes the book. Oh, that's a particularly excellent part of that novel. I just, I just, 
I just don't think that Victor Hugo wrote that. He did, every word. No, he didn't. Who has the PhD, Paul? How could Victor Hugo possibly know anything about your wife? He's a genius, that's how. <laughs> you know, to translate means to interpret. And in a way, when you write a translation, you are interpreting the thoughts of the author. Well, I think that you are horrible at interpreting other people's thoughts, so much so that I think that you are a lousy translator and that you will be the 34th person I fire this week. So what you are saying is that you enjoyed my translation of Crime and Punishment and that you want to hire me for the English translation of Melville's Moby Dick. No, I didn't say that at all, and Moby Dick is already in English. So you're saying you will give me an advance for Moby Dick? No, I'm not saying that, and I think you're proving my point about being a bad translator of people's thoughts. Oh, I had no idea that you thought so highly of me. Get out of my office! So what you are saying is that I should finally leave my wife and start seeing her niece, Trudy. Really? Get out of my office. I wish so much that I installed the trap door last year that I was going to. Suddenly, there is a noise behind them, and they both turn to look. Outside of the window of the 17th floor office, they see a bearded window cleaner standing on a scaffolding, staring at them. The window cleaner manages to open the window and pops his head in. Hi, I'm your window cleaner. I just want you to know that I clean a lot, off a lot of windows and there's a lot of people who taunt me by taking their clothes off in front of me and please don't take your clothes off in front of me. I'm just trying to do my job. Yeah, we're not going to take our clothes off in front of you. Well, a lot of people start off by not wanting to take their clothes off in front of me. But they usually end up changing their minds and taking their clothes off in front of me. Yeah, actually, I'm right in the middle of firing somebody right now. Hi, everybody. Tim Heidecker here with huge news. We have a terrific episode of Office Hours Live prepared for you. We had the great stand-up comedian Kyle Kinane come in and a very special in-studio music session from legendary Emdu Mokhtar. You're not going to want to miss this one. You can find it on your podcast app of choice by going to Sears or Macy's and getting an iPod and then coming home, charging it up and listening through your app. Well, sorry to say this, but that doesn't mean anything. If I could count the number of bosses who fire their employees naked, I'd be rich. I don't think that's how that saying goes. So please don't take your clothes off in front of me. We're not going to take our clothes off in front of you. Good. Good. Thank you. Okay. Uh, one of you can take your clothes off in front of me. Okay, you can both take your clothes off. Just go ahead and take your clothes off. This alarms the bearded window cleaner, who loses his balance and then accidentally falls off his scaffolding. <laughs> he falls down 17 floors and hits the ground with a sickening thud. Kevin runs to the window and looks down. Oh, my God! Oh, my God, he fell! He's dead! He's dead! No, wait! No, he's moving! He's moving! Well, he's moving his hand! His hand is crawling to his chest! His hand is crawling to his shirt! He's undoing a button! <laughs> He's undoing another butt. Oh, my God, he's taking his clothes off. 
Stop taking your clothes off! Someone has to. No, they don't! No one has to take their clothes off! Oh my God, he's taking his clothes off. Stop it! Stop taking your clothes off! Wait, wait, there's a crowd of people around him. Good, good, they can help him. Oh my God, they're taking their clothes off. See, people tend to take their clothes off. Stop it! Stop taking your clothes off! Stop it, crowd of people! Stop it! And he keeps shouting at the crowd of people to stop taking their clothes off until the lights fade and the sketch ends. And in case you're wondering why this weird ending that had nothing to do with the rest of the sketch was tacked on there, well, the window cleaner was played by our musical act, Benji Hughes, and Kevin promised him he would write a part for him in the sketch. Well, that's good. Well, I'm there. That's a, just leave, Kale. <laughs> I'm not going to say a thing. They're they going to laugh. Why, why do a thing? Uh, I'd like to thank Harry uh, Connor for doing this. Can you use again? Now, uh, now I'm going to interview Harry. Is that okay? That, that sounds great, Kevin. Okay, let's do that. Do I have? Oh yeah, I do have other stuff. Okay. Um, Usually the show's produced by my three producers, but they were too cheap to fly from Los Angeles. And usually they come running out and do what, uh, what I'm about to do now, move stuff. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm very excited to have you on the show. Well, oh, I appreciate it. You're doing a fine job of something. Ah! Oh, there you go. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, it's just, I know I'm forgetting some producing thing. I know something's going to come up that I'm going to forget. You did a fine job. Like, uh, you knew those chairs had to be there, and then you knew those chairs had to be forward on the stage, yeah. and you made a choice, and you moved them. That, that's producing. That's producing. Thank you very much. That is producing. Uh, do you produce your own podcast? That's not a, I'm ad-libbing this question. It's not on my list. <laughs> Well, um, I haven't had a podcast in about a year, but the two podcasts... Oh, I thought you... Uh, I'm sorry. Well, no, it's okay. It was for the best. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the two podcasts I did have, one with my friend W. Kamau Bell and the other with my brother Ashok, uh, we had other people producing it. And what did they do? What was their job? Well, uh, when one of the podcasts, uh, it, was a, it was very political. It was called Politically Reactive. Yes. And so what we did was uh, they would do most of the work... Uh, look up stuff, give us information, and uh, give us lots of questions to read, which we would pass on as our own oh, to the I guests, see. and we'd look very smart. And but uh, you knew about the questions before you went on. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes you didn't. Well, that's I mean, kind of exciting to me. But that's part of the fun of it. Uh, it's part of the fraud of being an entertainer. <laughs> Entertainment fraud. I wish I was a uh, there. I don't need to ad lib. I can ad lib questions for a while. I wish I was a political comedian because, like, your comedy is sort of important. Uh, my comedy is just comedy. And your comedy is comedy. Don't get me wrong. You took away the politicalness of it. It's uh, as funny as my comedy. Funnier because you're 20 years younger. Or 25 years younger, probably. Um, but it's also, like, it's important and funny. That's two things. I think it was 22 years younger. But, uh, okay, right, 22. But I don't know. I, is it... Uh... <laughs> I told him my age. Of the, I tell everybody my age in the green room. <laughs> as you look good. <laughs> Aren't I balding in a weird way, though? Like the side of my head. Isn't that crazy? Did, did you did you always not have that hair? No, this is new. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, no, I always had that hair. I mean, I, I used to have hair there. Wait. And uh, I'll get to back to you. Huh. Uh, the top of my head, sort of like where you're performing later, isn't it like Jesus Christ on the cross? <laughs> my bald spot is a bit like Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm vaguely familiar with that Christian story. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
So um, I'm very interested. I wish I was a political comedian. It's because especially we need it now. Um, uh, but it's not just like political. It's like it's important. So uh, here's my bad question. Um, do you think in terms of jokes first? Or do you think, oh, this is a topic I should write a joke about? Or does the magic thing happen where the topic and the joke comes at the same time? I think it's more of the second and third thing. I think when I started wanting to write about things that like I was passionate about, I started from the place of, I want to write a joke about racism. And then it would be really preachy and didactic because the point comes first. And after a while, it's like, well, no one's laughing, so it's not comedy anymore. And it's kind of like a, a poorly written verbal essay by someone who's wasted their college degree. You know? <laughs> and so the goal really now is writing jokes. If I write a good joke and have good ideas, then I can fill in the rest. You know? But like my job is to make people laugh. And if I fail at that, then I'm not, I'm not doing my job. Can you do jokes on Trump? Or uh, I would, even if I was a political comedian, I'd have trouble because right. I'm just too angry. I mean, I don't really do jokes on Trump. I don't like. I didn't think you did. No, I don't really like doing jokes on um, like Republicans, Democrats, that stuff. Like, I think for me, the word political is kind of it's yes. broad. Like to me, like when I see like. Uh, racism or homophobia or, or like injustice of any sort to me that's observational more than it's political that's what i meant it's yeah. bigger than political when i kept saying political i said oh that's i'm not saying the right word well no i mean i think political is so broad i feel like to me like the like the stuff that happens on the beltway you know that's like the sports of politics right like if you like the game you'll talk about the game right but to me like the bigger issues are more important and I don't know. Like at a certain point, it just becomes just frustrating because on a on a on a on a one on one level, it's easier to relate to human beings and talk about the things that affect them. But when you're talking about big political parties and all this money that's involved, it, it becomes more distant to people and depressing. Not that it matters, but I absolutely agree. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, these are boring questions, but they're exciting to me. I really am a comedy nerd, and I'm interested in this. Well, of course. And also, I could ask you questions if you're more yes. comfortable with that. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, why don't we ask? I'll ask you one, then you ask me one. That sounds good. And this is the boring comedy nerd question, but I'm really interested in boring things. Um, what age were you when you knew you were funny? Oh, right. Um, I think I kind of knew from elementary school on. Like, I knew I wasn't wow. the... Like the class clown. Like I wouldn't, uh, the class clown's generally a moron, you know? <laughs> it's the person that interrupts class and just has to get the attention and that's all it's about. And I feel like if you're a class comedian, you're watching that guy and picking up tips about his delivery. <laughs> class clowns have wonderful delivery. They just have no substance whatsoever. So if you actually know how to write and you care about talking about things like the delivery hopefully will come. Otherwise, you become a writer and you write for other people who have delivery. Yeah. Uh, I know you're going to ask me a question, but did you see, waiting, is it Waiting for Guffman where Eugene Levy talks about the class clown? And he said, uh, well, you know, a lot of us were class clown. I wasn't the class clown, but I sat very close to the class clown. <laughs> and I learned a lot from him. I t there was this guy, uh, are we allowed to use real names? I probably shouldn't, right? I, all, the, all the crushes were real names. Okay, so there's a fellow named Derwin who, um, he was uh, my year in high school, and I would be, like, in his global studies class, and I would make a joke based on something that was, like, we were studying or whatever, and nobody would laugh. No one. And it was horrifying, because I knew it was funny. And then maybe 30 seconds later, Derwin would say the exact same thing I said, and everybody would lose it. And I'm like, so that's how delivery works. <laughs> This man knows how to make those words funny in a way I have not managed. So you did learn from the class clown. I certainly did, yes. 
I, w- I was too shy to be class clown, but I got laughs. Uh, when it, it's a bad joke, but want to hear my first joke that I ever I, I absolutely laugh? do. It's a bad. Do you know what? Um, you're educated. Do you know what a pith ball is? P i t h pith ball. Oh, the little yeah, uh, little white furry things. Yeah, you know yeah. what? Uh, what? Did, you're a college educated again. Do you, uh, what do they do? Pith balls. Do they like float up and you do the right kind of temperature and flame or something? When I think of pith balls, I think of those little like little. Um, Squishy little balls yes. that people use in science fair projects. And yes. Like that. yes. Well, in science class, um, we were supposed to study uh, pith balls the night before and write a thing about them. And then uh, I watched a Marx Brothers movie instead. And, uh, and then the next day, uh, Mrs. McKenzie, I remember her name, uh, she said, And uh, Kevin, where did pith balls come from? And it's, it's a bad joke, but I was 12. I said, I don't know, Pittsburgh? I mean, it's a legal joke. It's a legal joke. <laughs> It certainly has the structure of a joke yeah. and what appears to be a punchline. Yeah, yes. like, don't get me wrong, I'm ashamed of it now. <laughs> and I, I hadn't thought of that for a year. I guess I blocked it out. And now as I get older, I'm celebrating bad stuff. <laughs> and I started thinking about uh, pitfalls. I, re- I remember the first joke I ever told on stage. It was during my... Um, it was during a high school election, my junior year. I went on stage and I said, oh, I'm so nervous about giving this speech. I've been thinking about it all week. I've had, like, my stomach's been a mess. And for a while there, I thought, maybe I wasn't nervous. Maybe I was pregnant. <laughs> and that, of course, is impossible because I'm a virgin. And That's a great joke. And I ended up doing that joke uh, many years later on Jimmy Came Alive, which is wow. very, it's very strange that the joke I wrote when I was 17 somehow lasted that long. Yeah. Okay, here's the first sketch I ever read mm. <laughs> when I was 16. Again, it's bad. I was very inspired by um, uh, SCTV when I was oh, a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So parody. So I wrote, I, actually, I wrote two sketches in one day. Uh, I didn't know the kids in the hall or anything. Uh, I, I, I don't know what's happened to the sketches I wrote. Nothing happened to them. We didn't act them out. Or, they're bad. Um, but uh, one was a, um, uh, a parody of uh, the movie Psycho. It was called Psychosomatic, and it was just me in the shower screaming. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one is a ripoff of that idea, because I thought of them the same day, whereas the odd couple only was the odd schizophrenic, where I'm both uh, neat and messy. <laughs> Wait, so they cut both of them? Uh, no, I never showed it to them. I just wrote it when I was like a 16 or 17 or something. And, uh, and they, uh, they stayed in my house until my mother uh, died. <laughs> Always end with your mother died. I kept... <laughs> Always end with that. Here, uh, another question. Uh, the comedy nerd question. Do, can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. Okay, so if you're number three in terms of the most famous <laughs> kids in the home, and Scott's number five, and I'm assuming Dave is number one, Right. Uh, yeah, like we were saying backstage, like, um, uh, like I, I do it in a different way. I, uh, like Dave's the best at the uh, at sort of jokes. Bruce is the best writer. Mark's the uh, just the best comic actor. Scott, like I, I made a joke that said Scott's the best Scott Thompson, but this is what I mean by that. I really mean that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's no one, like the strength of his personality is brilliant and crazy and brilliant <laughs> yeah. and when you can harness the craziness it's just brilliant um, uh, the Ramones who I loved uh, in, in some documentary Joey Ramone said um, there's no one in the world like Dee Dee um, mm. I found out later that he was insane Dee Dee or... <laughs> right, 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 right. but Scott's uh, like one of one Scott Th- yeah, yeah there's no one in the world like Scott Thompson and all the other kids in Hall uh, they say I'm just funny <laughs> 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 that I'm just essence <laughs> But here's a sad story from my, from my dead mother. 
Uh, she had an argument with my uh, drunk dad, and he left. Uh, it was, I was like 14 or something in the kitchen table. And when he left, I made a joke. I forgot the joke, thank God, because it probably was bad. And then she turned to me. This is, this is a sad story. This is not a funny story, so get ready. And, and she turned to me, and she said, oh, she broke a plate. First, she, she was so angry, she broke a plate, and she said, all you are is funny. <laughs> and that haunted me for years. <laughs> That's all I am. <laughs> Oh, and in a way, she's right. Like, I don't know how mortgages work. I, uh, <laughs> I, like, I don't know anything. It's actually the perfect tackle. Because, like, when, when you say a comedian, like, if you tell a comedian you're not funny, it's devastating. Yeah, yeah. And somehow she found a way to give the greatest compliment and, and by hurtful. destroying you. That's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. She had tears. <laughs> oh, you are. It's funny. She really sold it. Yeah, she really sold it. You're right. It's, uh, it's what Bruce McCullough calls a complisalt. Half compliment, half insult. Oh, yeah. We're doing a podcast. I should talk to you. <laughs> yeah, I, was, uh, I was about to say. <laughs> can, I, can I ask you another question? Yes. Is that okay? Okay. okay. Oh, I'm, just really, I'm just excited to talk to you. That's all. Um, okay. So um, did Lauren Michaels, who produced your show on television, understand what you all were doing? Because when I watch SNL, like now and even you know back in the eighties and nineties, like it's, it's very straightforward. It's like the, the very straightforward sketches. They went on a little bit too long. There's a lot of stuff that was written for a celebrity to be a celebrity, and what you all were doing was absurd. It was just <laughs> like it was like the most incredible thing. A guy that crushes people's heads with his fingers from a distance. How do you like? How do you explain that to Lauren Michaels? Oh, that's a good question. Well, first of all, I think that he is really smart, and he didn't know there was something there. But also, this one classic, I think it was Robert Schmeigel, told us that uh, I think the only reason why um, Lauren um, uh, produces you guys is when he goes to his fancy New York parties, someone could compliment him on you guys. (laughs) 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 But but I do think that Like you're like the art film. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I don't know. I think he's really smart. He says things that sound so smart. Like the first time he met us, um, he he finally got, like he hired Mark and Bruce uh, because he sent uh, people to, uh, to to audition us. And then, and then a year later, he was because he, he lives in Toronto. I mean, he came from Toronto, so he went to visit his family and he saw a stage show we were doing. And in a way, it was um, to see whether he wanted to work with us or not. And it was a horrible show. Um, it was like a midnight show and nobody laughed. And then afterwards, and this sounds so smart, but it doesn't mean anything. You're smart enough. You're going to let me know after all these years. Doesn't mean he said, no, no, you know, you can really tell uh, the essence of an act on a bad night. Huh. Doesn't that sound smart? Yeah. <laughs> doesn't mean anything, though? No. <laughs> but he used the word essence, which yeah. is well done. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember uh, Bruce and I, uh, we go, yeah, that's true. <laughs> And then he did sign us. I think, I think there's something there. <laughs> I think there's something there that he knows, um, but, um, uh, but I'm not sure. I'm just thinking how terrible, if, if anyone actually said, what do you mean in response? <laughs> this would be completely, your life would be completely different. Like on some nights, Bruce McCullough, what is it that to him? What does that mean? That's bullshit. Like he right, right, right. But he didn't. He, he just wanted to be, but doesn't that sound great? <laughs> it sounds amazing. You can really tell, you know, you can really tell the essence of an act on a bad night. <laughs> I vaguely get what he's saying. Yeah, sort of. Like you're saying that it's, uh, I can tell someone's good even if they're not good that particular day, kind of. Yeah, I think that's what he meant, but he, but he went in such an intellectual way. I, you didn't ask me, but here I go. 
I don't know why I'm telling you this. It's not that interesting. Oh, the 14-year-old right now in me is uh, geeking out like crazy. Uh, so you. I love this. Um, uh, why am I telling you this? Um, the, the, we, before we had a TV show, a couple years before, we were touring Canada and we were in Calgary where Bruce grew up and his parents came. I, this reminds me of a Bruce story. And um, uh, his whole family came. And uh, we had a bad night, but Bruce was particularly bad. <laughs> he was particularly bad. He, he was just nervous, and he was really off, which is weird for him. And then after the show, he, uh, after saying hi to his family, he came back to um, what was sort of the green room, um, and he came to us, and he said, I've never been more disappointed in the troupe. And I thought, oh, man, you had the worst night ever, fucker. <laughs> oh, here, 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 14-year-old, and I'll ask you a question after this. Uh, that was the night uh, I was 26, and because of my dad, I never drank. And that was the first night I had a drink. And uh, I was so depressed. Mark brought me to the only bar that was open in Calgary, uh, the late, um, I remember it was a gay bar, and there was only one guy in it. <laughs> and he kept saying, and, he kept, and I know he doesn't really have a cowboy hat. He had a cowboy hat on, and he, uh, and he said, one more drink, and I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> it sounds like a sketch you all wrote. Well, it, it became a sketch. <laughs> Not that part. That part should be. Because I, I kept refusing to have a drink, and Mark said, Kevin, have a margarita. It tastes like candy. And that became, uh, that became our scene, Girl Drink Drunk. No, you didn't ask that question, but I'm trying to please the fortune. Oh, my God. And I missed the part, too. He said, I'm going to have one more drink. I'm going to go home and kill myself. <laughs> that makes it nicer. It almost feels like he's still in character as yeah. the cowboy. <laughs> And he didn't look oh. like a cowboy. Like, <laughs> like he might as well have been saying, I'm going to ride a horse. <laughs> Let me ask you one more question, at least. Sure. Here's another boring comedy nerd question. When did you articulate to yourself, these boring questions uh, excite me. Um, I'm going to be a comedian. How old were you? Where were you? Do you know the time and place? That is, that is a very Lorne Michael-phrased question. Lorne Michaels would have said, how did you, when did you first articulate that? <laughs> Are you asking me when I, when I first knew I wanted to be a comic? Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and after this podcast, I'm going to go kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's the... It's the... Oh my God. Can you imagine hearing someone dressed as a cowboy saying that and trying not to it's laugh? Did you laugh? No. I mean, I'm making it funny. And it's, I'm not exaggerating at right. all, but it seemed pretty depressing. Right, right. <laughs> but if, if that fellow looked back at himself saying that, wearing what he was wearing, he would have laughed. I think so, yes. Yeah. I think so, yes. Um, I think I probably first thought it was a, a possibility, of, like I could go on stage and tell jokes when I saw Margaret Cho do stand up on TV. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that is where that sound would come in. Yes, <laughs> and I'd never seen someone who wasn't black, white, or Latino do stand up, and so it was like, whoa, like she's Korean and I'm Indian, but it was still like I've never seen anyone who didn't look like these three you know, groups like tell their story and talk about their families. And it was like the first time I got super inspired. I'm like, I, I, I'm going to try doing this. So that was like the first moment. Good story. I, I, I'm about to say the thing I'm about to say as a good thing. Uh-huh. Um, uh, kids in Hall wouldn't get a TV show nowadays when we were 20. Because five white guys don't deserve a TV show anymore. <laughs> Our days are gone. Well, I mean, I think you all... It's fair. I'm not complaining. It's fair. Yeah, five white guys still get TV shows, though. I feel like, yeah, there's still a lot of... I'm sorry. It's okay. 
But I mean, I think you all would have. I mean, first of all, it's hard to even say that because, like, what you all did, people have probably ripped off in different ways over the years too, um, to to different effect. You know, like just your style and how you chose to to write what you were. I mean, my God, did, I mean, have you ever? I mean, would, would, could in in a world is there a world where the five of you would come back together and create like a special or like a one off thing? Is that a thing that? Could, yes, we're uh, we're negotiating for something right now. Are you really? Yes, we are. I'll tell you later. Okay. <laughs> not because I like him better than you guys. It's just that I'm not supposed to tell anybody. <laughs> so it's better than I tell one person. <laughs> well, there's a clear edit point for the editor. I'm going uh, to see how much time we want. Oh, what time's your show tonight? <laughs> <laughs> my, my show's at 9 o'clock, so I probably okay. should go back to my hotel and get ready. Yeah, well, uh, big hand for What's in that? Oh, yeah. Uh, we're almost done-ish. I'm going to tell you a real, a true Kids in the Hall story. I waited as if I was going to hear her applause, but I didn't mean it. <laughs> a true Kids in the Hall story. I'm a whore. <laughs> oh, I have to uh, look for my script again. I'm sorry. These are the questions. We'll clean up afterwards. Uh, okay, uh, and then uh, Benji's going to do a bunch of songs, like three songs. Um, uh, I'm very excited. That's what. Uh, that's really why I'm doing the podcast to meet Harry and hear the songs. But here's a true Kids in the Hall story. Uh, I'm now going to tell you another Kids in the Hall story where I name drop Lauren Michaels, uh, because that's all I have to name drop, um, except for Cato Kalen, who once lent me forty five dollars in an elevator. <laughs> now. Now, Lauren had discovered the Kitson Hall. Wow, I've already said all this stuff. Kitson Hall discovered, um, uh, Lauren discovered the Kitson Hall in the summer of 85, but didn't want to hire all five of us for Saturday Night Live. The cost of five flights to New York would have been crazy. So he just hired Mark McKinney and Tiny Bruce McCullough as writers for the show. It was a lot cheaper for Tiny Bruce's ticket. Uh, so the uh, three losers in the hall, Dave Scott and myself, were the only ones left in Toronto that winter, and we were uh, asked to do a very big gig. We were very excited. We were going to open for famous lounge singer Buddy Greco at a big theater in a big hotel in Toronto, the Royal York, on their annual big New Year's Eve show. Does anyone remember Buddy Greco? No. He was a singer. He was sort of a, he was like a lounge singer. He was sort of a B-movie Frank Sinatra. If the Rat Pack were the Beatles, Buddy would have been Herman's Hermits. But not Herman, just a hermit. But he was very big in Vegas, and he had a big hit. Uh, a lot of people cover this song, but he had a giant hit with Lady is a Tramp. Uh, so he was that kind of a singer. So we 20-year-old punks were opening for a, a popular Las Vegas singer in front of a couple thousand 40- and 50-year-olds. We were like 21. Um, and it was in a hotel ballroom on New Year's Eve. It does not sound like the right gig for us, but we were super excited. We were getting paid $500 each. And we were going to be playing in the ballroom of the Toronto famous Royal York Hotel, where, speak of the devil, the Beatles had not played, but stayed there. I mean, we were going to play in a theater where 20 years earlier, 12 floors above, the Beatles were having orgies, and you could hear Ringo say, Can I have a girl? I know I'm only Ringo, but can I have a girl? A girlish boy? Uh, the manager of the ballroom, uh, his name was Enrico Santini, uh, was also Toronto famous. He was vaguely mob-connected. 
um, and had booked Lounge Act for almost 30 years. Actually, he had booked Cher and Tina Turner, but right before their comebacks. Um, he was the pre-comeback booker. If you were on the verge of a big comeback, Enrico would quickly book you before the comeback and before anybody cared and paid money for it. In the early 80s, he once booked Roy Orbison and Tom Jones to perform together in a show called We'll Hit It Big Again in a Couple Years right after we're finished doing this lousy show at a hotel where Ringo wasn't allowed to be in orgies. But we 20-year-old punk comedians were actually excited. Uh, this was sort of the big time. And of all of the jobs I ended up having during his lifetime, this was the only one which impressed my dad. Hammy, short for Hamilton, yes, the famous drunk dental equipment salesman. In fact, Hammy decided that he and his new wife, Susan Buttons, a former circus clown, would, would make the six-hour drive <coughs> from Montreal to Toronto, <coughs> excuse me, to see the show. This made me even more nervous than I already was. Not because of Susan. She was nice enough. She was my stepmother, I guess. And even though she was only six years older than me, she wanted to be like my real mother. Uh, once in Montreal, uh, a year earlier, when I was 22 and she was 28, she brought me to the ice capades, <laughs> bought me a hot dog, and held my hand all the way to my seat, asking me if I was excited to see Snoopy. <laughs> True story. Oh, yeah. Also, she would like to introduce herself like this. Hi, I'm Susan. Nice to meet you. I'm Baron. <laughs> True story. <laughs> but no, it was my dad being there that made me nervous. I felt that he saw me as a failure and couldn't believe I was a comedian. This was because he was constantly saying, Kevin, you're a failure, and I can't believe you're a comedian. Uh, so I was super nervous. Um, if I wasn't so nervous, it would have been fun. On the day of the New Year's Eve uh, and the show, they gave us a suite in the hotel, a giant suite, probably with the Beatles suite, where the three of us, our friends, and Mark McKinney, remember Mark McKinney, the kids in the hall? We all hung out before the show. <clears throat> now, Mark wasn't doing the show with us, but he came to be supportive. But I re he got us nervous after he saw us rehearse, because I remember he said, gee, I don't think you guys are going to go over doing that weird shit at the Royal York Hotel. And then proceeded to tell us what it's like at SNL to rewrite a joke for Madonna as she stood next to you in her underwear. Finally, the show was about to start. Our part was supposed to begin at 9.30. At 9.25, Dave Scott and I were in the wings, ready to go on, sweating with fear. I snuck a look behind the curtains to see my dad sitting at his $2,000 table, bragging to the man next to him that he was a better alcoholic than he was. We were introduced by a, an obvious mob hitman who worked for Enrico Santini. The crowd was already drunk two and a half hours before midnight. And we were, as we were entering the stage to start our act, the band that was playing before us was coming off. Uh, we got an omen of what the evening was going to be like when the bass player, it's always the bass player. Thank you. Good reference. Uh, who told us that the act, um, well, it's always been, told us the act that was going to play the ballroom next week, 50s TV and pop star uh, Ricky Nelson had just died with his entire band in a plane crash. True story. Hey, Ricky Nelson just died in a horrible plane wreck. Have a good show, guys. I'm a bass player. <laughs> we gulp and enter the giant stage in front of 2,000 people. The second that Dave Scott and I start our sketch of the Royal York Ballroom, we realize that the drunk 50-year-olds in the audience are not only not listening, they are screaming on the top of their lungs, Balloons! Balloons! They are drunkenly referring, of course, to the hundreds of balloons that will be released from the ceiling at midnight. They don't care about our little skit that Scott Thompson wrote about a gay man pretending to be an angel just so he can give a married guy a blowjob. As the wife says, well, he is an angel, honey. No, 
they just care that it's New Year's Eve and they don't have their balloons yet. They ignore and scream over us for about a minute. Then it's the part of the scene where I jump into the audience to ad-lib with a woman whose hair is taller than she is. The woman is yelling at me. Her hair is yelling at me. Finally, the mob hitman slash MC comes sprinting out of the wings towards me, grabbing the mic out of my hand and violently pushes me away from the audience. Uh, Turn the page. I see that Dave and Scott have already been forced off the stage. The MC says this. I'll never forget this. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, those were the weakest members of the kids in the hall. Uh, One one day when the two good ones will rejoin the group, I'm sure they'll be big stars, go very far. They had a little trouble tonight. As he rambles on, I see my dad get up, looking embarrassed, and leave the theater. He is hiding his face in shame, and he is literally holding his keys to the car. I find out later that he was planning, and he did, go straight from the New Year's Eve bomb to his car to drive six hours back to Montreal before midnight on New Year's Eve. Now, in reality, he probably wasn't really holding a sign that says, I disown my asthmatic failure of a son. But that is the way that I remember it, so it is true. (laughs) Now, back in those days, I wasn't as stable and mentally healthy as I am now. You see, I didn't just bomb and get kicked off the stage one minute into our 30-minute show at the Royal York Ballroom on New Year's Eve. I bombed in front of my dad, who never thought I was any good to begin with, who came from a far distance and paid a fortune to come and see his son perform on New Year's Eve. So I storm off the stage, furious, upset, crying, and wheezing. Uh, I am asthmatic. For some reason at theater, when you leave backstage, you are immediately in the kitchen of the hotel. I am crying and screaming next to a fat chef who is cutting off the heads of dead ducks. I start throwing plates. I am going crazy. I am being a lunatic. Dave comes to me and tells me to calm down. Enrico Santini, the manager of the ballroom, is here, and we have to go apologize for bombing in such an explosive, glorious way. But I don't calm down. I keep screaming and throwing plates. Um, Not one plate breaks, by the way. Luckily, I am a weak lunatic. (laughs) Not knowing what else to do, I'll never forget this, Dave grabs me and throws me in the large food freezer and closes the door. It locks automatically. Now, part of the job of being a psychotic lunatic is also to be claustrophobic. Um, I am locked in a small room, feeling claustrophobic, and I am freezing. I now go super crazy. There are no plates to throw, so I start hitting cow carcasses. I am a weak, insane Rocky Balboa. No one hears me. The freezer is soundproof. Later, Dave tells me what happened during the five minutes that I was in the freezer. As Enrico Santini is singing to an apologetic Dave, it's all right. I don't know what I was thinking. I should never have booked you guys, the three weakest members of an alternative comedy troupe, opening for Buddy Greco on New Year's Eve. I'm sorry. Buddy Greco's manager, uh, another uh, obvious mafia guy, comes uh, tearing into the kitchen, grabs Enrico by the collar and says, you told us you had an opening act. That was nothing. That was less than nothing. Uh, Even the two good members of that troop would have bombed. Enrico Santini pounds on his chest and says, you wanted to kill me for years. Kill me now. Kill me now. True story. And he tears his shirt open. Uh, he tore it open and he puffed his chest out. Now, there was no real reason to do that. I just think he, he was trying to look sexy. Now, this was a different time, the 80s. Nobody would care now. Even the mafia is more politically correct. Um, back in the 80s, there were rumors that Enrico Santini, the famous Royal York ballroom manager and mafia guy, was a closeted gay man. And I, and I say rumors only because I don't want to be sued or killed by him. Or rather, his family. He is dead now and is probably in a closeted gay coffin. So here was this closeted gay mobster ripping a shirt off because of us yelling, kill me now! Kill me now! 
Dave unlocks me out of the freezer uh, with me sobbing and wheezing with asthma. Uh, Cold makes asthma worse. We sneak out of the kitchen with sounds of, kill me now, kill me now, echoing in our ears. From the stage, we can hear Buddy Greco singing his hit, Lady is a Tram, while the uncaring audience is still yelling, balloons, balloons. Because of us, Buddy Greco is bombing in front of his fans singing his hit on New Year's Eve. Uh, And there was no comeback for Buddy coming. This was him peeking. (laughs) Dave takes me outside and lets me sob and wheeze for an hour. Then finally, we take the elevator up to our suite. Uh, And who's in the elevator with us? Of course, it is Buddy Greco. (laughs) Staring at us coldly, Dave Foley looks at him and says in that slightly charming, slightly evil manner of his, Well, we warmed them up for you, Buddy. I'll never forget seeing a 56-year-old lounge singer die for Dave Foley. <laughs> grabbing him by the collar, starts choking him. He has to be pulled off by the only other person in the elevator, a tiny woman, clearly in her 70s, while holding her crazily groomed French poodle. I can't help. I am wheezing too much. This is an absolutely true story. As she is holding a furious buddy Greco down on the floor, she yells to us, Get out of here! I can only hold him for so long! <laughs> We push the button in the closest floor and jump out of the elevator. As the door closes, we see the tiny woman holding her poodle while kneeling on Buddy Greco's chest. That night, feeling miserable and like a complete failure, I do not go home, though it is close to the hotel. I stay in the hotel suite, and I am lucky. My good, good friend, Mark McKinney, and a friend of the troupe, a woman named Siobhan, who I, of course, have an unrequited crush on. They stay in the suite with me to cheer me up. Eventually, we go to sleep. We all share the bed. It's a big bed. Mark has sex with Siobhan, the woman I have a crush on, with me laying next to them. As I turn to get out of the bed, my trick knee goes out. It's true. And I fall on the floor, screaming in excruciating pain, as Mark and Siobhan ignore me and continue to make love. It is truly the worst night of my life. I blame the guy who rode Lady as a Tramp. <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, the most exciting part of the show. Benji, are you around? Benji, you're going to do some song. Benji! There he is. He's from Charlotte! <laughs> I'm going to go watch like you watched me. That was great. Don't worry, I'm not going to play too long. Uh, just like, like a couple songs, two or three songs. They're they're only like 14 minutes long, but. Like, <laughs> Shooting stars streaming across the sky You know it's just a meteorite People throwing pennies in a wishing well Wishing well's gonna run dry But I ain't gonna leave you tonight Everybody talking about changing the world 
change, but you can always change in front of me. I'll shuck all the oysters and even keep the pearls. I do my shucking and my jiving for free, free. Like walking down the beach at night. Throwing a line out to the one you want until you get it right. That's a great part right there. Until you get it, hold on. Until you get it right, that's where I get it wrong. Until you get it right. Okay, and then. Okay, okay. Sometimes you don't. Get it right. <laughs> Sometimes you won't. Get it right. But when you do. It's out of sight. Sometimes you do. Get it right. I showed up at the hotel today with a like about this much, um, well, with like a little bit of uh, Evan Williams left in a bottle and like a fifth, I <laughs> showed up to meet uh, Kevin, and, and I was like, hey, man, it's just so great to meet you. I think I got him for a second. <laughs> and then I think he's like, oh, great. This guy's done in. Uh, so anyway. Um, so this song... Uh, I figure I'm playing a Spirit Square. Uh, I should play a song called Spirit Guide. Spirit Guide, oh Spirit Guide, when the door swings open wide, when there is no one inside, who cares? Oh Spirit Guide, please show me. That you're there Spirit guide Spirit guide I really need you tonight To freak me out And kick me down the stairs Oh spirit guide Please show me That you're there Maybe just for the week Blending in with the snow Just to save Cat Stevens From the undertow Twinkle in the ivories Spicing up Halloween Spiking the punch With spiritual stuff And spooking up the scene Spirit guide is it a place to hide? Because I really wonder why 
The gods would be the way they choose to be. Oh, spirit guide, picking on me. Driving my lover crazy, taking away my home, making me feel like a corpse and pasta drenched in cheap cologne. Chewing the ends of my fingers off until I see my love. What do you think it's gonna take for the gods to leave me alone? I don't need a lot to be happy. I just want my lover back. Do you see what's really happening? Do you know I'm under attack? Is there a way to get through quickly to the one I love? Cause it's starting to seem like I'm losing the girl of my dreams. Oh no. Spirit, spirit guide, spirit guide. Can you tell her I realize why she's the only Spilling my beer Is that your way of showing me you're here? Cause I can't find my flip-flops Is that your way of showing up? Why do I feel like throwing up? Is that just part of growing up? Spirit guide, I don't want you to disappear Spirit guide, thanks for being here Please leave me the whiskey and help yourself to the beer And cheers, spirit guide Thank you I stayed at a really weird house one time where some stuff went down. <laughs> My flip-flops disappeared. Things got knocked over. Whatever. I'm sure it was... <laughs> I'm sure it was just the wind or something. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I guess since everything's been a big downer, I'll just do another downer and then peace out. Uh, oh. <laughs> For those out there listening to the podcast, I just uh, hit my head on the microphone stand. It's just a Marx Brothers tie-in. It's no big deal. And by the way, I'd like to say this has been awesome. Hasn't Kevin been wonderful? And Big fan, honored that I was asked to do this, and uh, it's really cool, so. Thank you. All right, let's see here. Wouldn't it be sweet if you could be in love with me?
Thank you to everybody that worked on this too. Great sound, folks. Everybody's been great. Thank you! That's cool. Thank you, Thank you, Thank you, Eric on the ball. Thank you, Kale. Thank you, um, everybody else. I forgot to write my thank you list. Thank you, everybody at this festival, though it's not called a festival. It's called Queen City Comedy Experience. Yes. Thank you. Joe Hunsicker. Thank you, Bert. I remember people. Thank you very much. But screw you, Kevin McDonald. Thank you. Good night. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.